one of the great Dharma teachers of the past, uh, was, was named Shantideva. Many of you have heard of his most famous work, was the, which is called the, uh, Bodhisatt- the Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life. And I wanted to begin tonight with one of my favorite quotes of Shantideva, just as a reminder of what, what we're doing here, what our potential is, and especially in the face of so many challenges and difficulties that, that we face in the, in the world that we live in, in the community we live in, in the neighborhood we live in. Uh, just endless kinds of things that are hard to bear and that we have to, and just the basic stresses of life, of everything that we have to do every day, that in the middle of it there is this uh, capacity that I think he expresses beautifully. It says, as a blind man feels when he finds a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed at the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death, the treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life, the tree that gives shade to us when we roam about scorched by life, the bridge that takes us across the stormy river of life, the cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated, the sun that dispels darkness, the butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it into the Dharma, churning it with the Dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. So this, in some way, is the, the invitation of the Dharma to awaken to, uh, to all of the qualities of, of joy, of kindness, of compassion, of patience, of balance, of generosity, all that we spoke about a little bit earlier. And this is not, um, this doesn't come, even though it is innate in our nature, it doesn't exactly come naturally because of the way that we are conditioned. As even the neuroscientists have discovered, our brain has a negative bias. It tends to fixate on what's not working so well. It tends to, to fixate on the negative. I've been, you know, of course, being in this seat for over 30 years now, I am, uh, I am often uh, the recipient of both praise and blame, <laughs> as anyone is in their life. But this being cooking up this meal every Tuesday, kind of, ex- kind of hap- you know, extempor- extemporaneous style, I cook up a meal, the best meal I can for the moment, given the conditions that may be coming together at the time that I offer this meal. Some like it, some don't. <laughs> And I can be praised 30 times. And the one blame will be the one that my mind fixates on. 
I can be told how wonderful I am. And the person who says, you know, you're talking about this too much. Or you're whatever. That's the one that I remember. And I was just speaking to someone today who, who is a Dharma student and recently had some experiences that where their mind was really, they were really harmed. They were, and their mind really fixated on the, the harm that was uh, caused to them through someone else's words and actions and, and two different people. And because that person was a Dharma student, a, a student of awakening, they understood that negative bias, that tendency to become fixated on that, that painful place, to, be, to experience the world almost entirely absorbed in the effect of whatever that painful experience was. And because that person is trained in awareness, they were able to use that pain as a doorway to, uh, to the tenderizing of their heart, a door to compassion, both for themselves and for the other person. It didn't just remain in the state of, of self-absorption or preoccupation, it got transformed, just like Shantideva said, churned by the Let's see, he said, the butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it, it with the Dharma. He churned it with the Dharma, and it turned into compassion, it turned into wisdom. And now the same person talks about that as being really a meaningful experience that they had. And if I were to list all the the so-called insights that have come during my own practice. It's always been having turned, it's been some difficulty that became the springboard to my opening. If our mind is not being utilized in that, in that way of the Dharma, the way of wisdom and love, the way of joy, it's very easy to wander a long time in a, in a fixation on everything that's wrong. And in that process, lose, lose sight of the possibility of, I always, I use the expression, putting it to good use. Using whatever it is that's happening for the purpose of awakening. To remind you of, of the simple, uh, being grateful for the simple things being reminded of the, the, like we talked about during the sitting today, just the, just the fact of it being aware, the fact of feeling sensations and being embodied, the fact of having a heart that quivers, that, that, that feels, the fact that having a mind that thinks, that a mind that remembers, a mind that plans, how amazing. It's incredible. And yet, when my mind is caught up, fixated, on only the things that are hard to bear, as most human beings are, when my mind is caught in that, I lose sight, very easily lose sight. When I focus only on the blame, 
and not really take in the praise and just be able to receive the gift, the generous gift that someone offers when they extend themselves and say, I really like that. I break that, I break that opportunity to complete the circle of generosity because my mind is fixated on, on some view that it's not so good. Just something that didn't work about the talk or about what I said or didn't say. So the Dharma invites us certainly not to ignore the painful things. They are the springboard to our open heart. But to, one, use them in the service of awakening and use them in the service of reminding us to go against the stream of that that habitual tendency to fixate on the negative. To use it in the service of appreciating the simple reality of the living present. Why do we point to the living present? Because the living present experienced directly is never as bad as the elaborations, the narratives about what's happened before or what could happen in the imagined future. It's never as dire in the living present. No matter what our situation is. And in fact, if even a very difficult situation that I may be right in the middle of, if I've had the habit in my life of orienting myself to be present, then I'm actually more capable, I'm more apt to respond in a skillful way when some action is needed. I won't be freaked out. And if I'm freaked out, I'll be able to contain being freaked out. So this is really what our practice is. And it doesn't just happen by accident. If we know that we have this negative bias, if we have some wisdom about that, then it's time to practice. It's time to practice with a kind of urgency. If I just keep going with the flow of my, my human conditioning, if I keep just doing it like, like I've been doing it before, I'm pretty much spend, well, we know we all automatically, virtually all human beings, or at least maybe it's, this is, uh, it does have some bias because it was a Western study, that we spend 47 percent of our time daydreaming. Study at Harvard, beepers were given, people were asked, what's in your mind at the moment? 47 percent of the time people were, were daydreaming. It comes with the territory. The only people who seemed to score higher in the daydreaming category were people who were having a lot of sex. But they didn't survey meditators. 
Meditators can dramatically redress that, that, that imbalance, you could say. Can dramatically increase the amount of undistractedness, of openness. And the more that we can, through the effort of our practice, go against the stream of that habit of, of distractedness, the more moments we have to appreciate sights and sounds and smells and tastes and sensations and just the fact that we're here, just the awe and wonder of existence itself, to feel grateful, appreciative, to feel the joy of being. He says it's a, what did he call it? He says it, it's a joy, it's a feast of joy to which all are invited. We have this enormous capacity for joy that we are wasting away in our negative bias. And what better, more loving, more generous offering to this world than our joy? than this capacity that every single human being has. As everyone here, I think, knows, because I've talked about it ad nauseum, the Buddha was called the happy one. He was not called the great fixated one, fixated on suffering, even though it was the first noble truth that he offered, is that life has difficulty. But he says what he's really saying life has happiness. But what prevents us from experiencing it, this joy that, to which all are invited, what prevents us from seeing it is our mind is fixated. It is in a state of craving or clinging, clinging to pleasure, of trying to avoid pain. And our mind is often fixated in some kind of reactive identification with something that's going on and being spinning around and around in a little, uh, in a world of our imagination. Putting ourselves completely in a state of, I call it suspended happiness, suspended joy. Somehow trying to figure out how I can get rid of the situation I'm in, have a, a different situation show up. And meanwhile, the, the joy that is that invitation is waiting right in the middle, right in the middle of whatever's happening in our life. We do not have to postpone joy while we're solving our problems. This is the Dharma of non-postponement. It's the, it's the Dharma of not, not, uh, not even waiting a single moment To be happy. That all waiting for happiness or relief or well-being, all search for it is a kind of misery that just increases. And that we don't have to. And if there's anything that to me that the Buddha discovered sitting under the Bodhi tree is that uh, after all this, after at least his six years of trying every kind of extreme practice 
experiencing every kind of soaring, transcendental experience, coming and going after all the joys and sorrows that he opened to, he realized that the, that the, the real joy and the sorrow is to be able to sit with an open heart right in the middle of it all and find a, a sense of well-being that doesn't depend on conditions. That's worth fighting for. You know, I, I don't know how many of you watch PBS this on the 4th of July, but um, they had a, an interview with John Adams. You know, the, which number president was he? Well, it was a person who was pretending they were John Adams. And they were talking about the, the liberation process that the, the Americans went through with the British. And of course, this was, you know, white people trying to liberate themselves from other white people. And, you know, it's a, it's a little bit skewed because there were people, many people who were, were kind of collateral damage in, their, in that particular liberation fight, but it's, it was a, a very human thing to be under a state of oppression of the British, excessive taxation and rules and regulations that was oppressive to these people who came here for freedom and were, were looking for just a, a sense of ease of well-being and, and freedom to, to live in the way that they wanted. And in order to succeed in that particular kind of revolution, they, there were people who really who, who fought that fight without regard for body or life. For the benefit of as many, you know, at least in their idea of whoever they wanted to have access to, to, um, to freedom. Now, of course, that's, it's not... Um, it didn't bring freedom to everyone. It brought bondage to a lot of people. Since they were slave owners and they were, and, and, and the Native American, you know, it was a, a mess. But yet that liberating spirit is something that we all carry. And we will continue to fight oppression, injustice, and do it on the externally. But this liberation process of our own hearts and minds, no one can do that for us. It's the same thing that requires the willingness, in some ways, as my teacher used to say, to practice without regard for body or life. Practice as though your hair is on fire. Don't just turn it into a hobby. Practice with fierce determination to be that joy to which you long for, and to be that and to dedicate that to the welfare and benefit of everybody else. Because that's what we're really, what we offer is the quality of our heart. It's the quality of our being. It's our consciousness. It's what we do with our, it's what we do with our mind, what we do with our speech, what we do with our body. And what we do with our with our mind, with our speech and our body depends on the quality of our love, the quality of our attention, our wisdom. And so why not? If you really want to make a contribution to this world, 
Fight all the fights that you need to fight. But the one that may be the hardest, but it's worth doing, is resolving your own mind. Resolving your own heart. And the recommendation is to do it from the moment you wake up in the morning till the time you hit the pillow. How many of you have, have from the moment you woke up, had continuous mindfulness and loving kindness through a whole day? <laughs> How many of you had the intention to do that? Now, I know people who've been on retreat like that, but it's possible. Not possible to have continuous loving kindness and mindfulness, but it's possible to dedicate your day to even your work day to have your, the qualities that, of awakening, that capacity for joy, the hub around which you live your day. You don't have to wait for this till the next retreat. You don't have to wait until next Tuesday. Start locating yourself wherever you are. Take in the scene as you walk out of this church tonight. Take in the garden. Take in the way you feel as you walk through the garden. Take in the way your hand moves toward that gate and opens it. How amazing is that? How we fall down steps and somehow maintain our balance. How we get into these weird machines and turn a little dial and it goes vroom. That's, that felt kind of strange when I said that. <laughs> to see, to try to find the awe and wonder in the simple moments. And you'll, you're, a smile will come to your face. And it won't, your life won't feel like such a failure. So unsatisfactory. And you may then start to notice how many moments there are in your life, in your life, that are really sublime. That maybe don't have anything to do with success or failure, anything to do with how you're doing in your, in your, um, your pursuit of wealth and fame and name and relationship but has to do just because you are. That's not dependent on conditions. I, I read this poem on, did a half day retreat on Saturday and I, and I enjoyed this poem so much that I want to read it again tonight. It's called, Can You Be Happy With Nothing? from Steve Taylor. Can you be happy with nothing, without looking forward to happiness, without entertainments and activities to distract you from unhappiness, without projects that excite you with their promises of success and that make you feel you're moving closer and closer to happiness, without collecting more possessions or climbing to higher status and parading your wealth and prominence to try to convince others and yourself that you're happier than them, if not, then your happiness is always on loan, second-hand and superficial, like a blanket that's quickly pulled away, leaving you cold and empty and craving more. But you can be happy with nothing. There's a happiness that has no cause. 
that doesn't come from consuming or collecting and doesn't deceive or disappoint or quickly fade. A well-being of being itself that simply is and is always there. A deep, rich glow of wholeness. A soft and subtle energy whose nature is bliss, like a steady flowing river whose source is you. A well-being you don't need to chase, only to uncover. And you don't need to strive for, only allow. So this is why a a Tibetan Rinpoche named Patro, very wise and slightly humorous, put it this way. Don't prolong the past, which is one of our common fixations. Don't invite the future. Don't alter your innate wakefulness. Don't fear appearances. Apart from that, there's not a damn thing. (laughs) Or as the Poet Hafez says, what do people who are sad have in common? It seems they have all built a shrine to the past and often go there to do a strange wail and worship. What is the beginning of happiness? It's to stop being so religious like that. And I wrote verse number two, many of you have heard already. What do people who are fearful and worried have in common? It seems they have all built a shrine to the imagined future and often go there to do a strange wail and worry. What is the beginning of happiness? It's to stop being so religious like that. So we don't just do this for our own, for our own sake. We do it because I don't know, I do it because, out of love, I do it because I, because you're not really, you know, when I'm quiet, when I'm present with you, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, I'm you and you are me, that we inter-are, we are completely interdependent. He says, you you are me and I am you. Isn't it obvious we enter our? You cultivate the flower in yourself so that I will be beautiful. I transform the garbage in myself so that you will not have to suffer. I support you. You support me. I am in this world to offer you peace. You are in this world to bring me joy. And you do. You do. So it's really easy to forget this capacity, this ever-present wakefulness that we don't want to alter, as Patrol says, this, all the qualities that, that flow, the affection that comes when we are present. It's available to us. And I think I'll end 
by reading the same thing I started with, since I, somehow we hit 9 o'clock, and I feel like I just started. But from Shantideva again. As a blind man feels when he finds a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death, the treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life, the tree that gives shade to us when we roam about scorched by life, the bridge that, makes, that takes us across the stormy river of life, the cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated, the sun that dispels darkness, the butter made from the, with the milk of kindness by churning it with the Dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. So may we all experience that joy and may our joy be dedicated, our simple moments of joy, simple moments of aware presence be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all so that all beings can know happiness and the causes of happiness. That all beings can be free of so much suffering and the causes of suffering, which is really our inability to stay awake. And then we act in ways that are confused and unskillful. A deep wish that all beings can recognize this sacred happiness and never be apart from it. And a deep wish that all beings and grow in serenity and equanimity. Be able to sit in the middle of it all. Take in the joys and the sorrows and not have our well-being dependent on one or the other. Deep wish that all beings be free. And you are, you have that capacity. So let's get to work. <laughs> Okay, you're on your own. No, not really. <laughs> anyway, thank you for thank you for your practice. Thank you for your generosity, and thank you to help with the help putting the chairs in piles of four against the wall. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/slash. Donate.